It's 1700 in Hong Kong, 10am in Zurich, 9am here at Midori House in London and 5am in New York City. You're listening to Monocle Radio. Monocle on Sunday starts now. And a very good morning to you. We're live in London and you're listening to Monocle on Sunday with me, Emma Nelson. Coming up, Isabel Hilton and David Badanis, my star guests, looking at the weekend's papers. A very good morning to you, Isabel. What have you spotted? Well, in the middle of all the really appalling news, it was encouraging that Colombia has uh, decided to lend energy to Ecuador, its neighbour. Ecuador's suffering from power cuts because of a, a a massive drought is affecting its hydropower, but also because two months ago, the people of Ecuador voted to leave oil in the ground. Thank you very much indeed for that. Monocle's editorial director, Tyler Brule, will be checking in with us from Hong Kong and we'll head to Finland to find out why people love nothing more than a good book. I'm Monocle's Helsinki correspondent, Petri Burtsov, and I'll be coming to you live from the Helsinki Book Fair, one of Europe's largest literature festivals. We'll talk about why Finns read so much and why print is alive and well in Finland. That's all coming up on Monocle on Sunday. Live from London, this is Monocle on Sunday with Emma Nelson. And a very good morning to you. Uh, let's say hello to Isabel Hilton and David Badanis. A very good morning to you as well. How are you, David? Uh, David's doing very well. He was startled to see what happened last night in Saudi Arabia. A tall <laughs> English boxer lost the fight, but the judges gave it to him because oh. there's more money for him than for his French opponent. Okay. That sounds nice, clean playing. How about you, Isabel? How's your week been? You've been fighting a computer. My week's been awful, actually. I've spent three days trying to fix uh, the problem that my laptop won't connect to the internet at home, and it's still not fixed. So you have no internet? I have internet. It's just that my laptop won't connect to it. Okay. Everything else does. Any any suggestions would be don't really look at welcome. me. <laughs> Seriously, don't look at me. How about you, David? Are you, are you, can you fix up? Can you fix laptops? There's a wonderful way to fix laptops, which is to find a teenager, nab them, and say, <laughs> "Please have pity." I, I thought you were going to say buy a new one, which I'm very tempted to do. I had a great week. I, ha- I played a game with my 11 year old son. We played uh, "How far can you get for as little money possible?" <laughs> we made it to Dublin, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> we found a plane and we got on the plane, and then we went to Dublin for 48 hours, and it was super fun. And now we're back. Let's head. Uh, let's hear now from another tra- traveller a little bit further afield in Ireland. Though, let's head to Hong Kong. Our editorial director Tyler Brule is joining us on the line. Uh, a very good afternoon to you, Tyler. How goes it where you are? Good morning, Emma. Good morning, David. Good morning, Isabel. It goes. It goes well. Uh, I'm talking to you from uh, the centre of uh, Pacific Place uh, in Central in Hong Kong, and I do need to pick up on uh, Isabel's. Uh, connectivity problems because I'm heading across the border tomorrow, heading over to Shenzhen, and all of, of course, the discussion uh, amongst many of us who are traveling over, of course, is the VPN connections and what happens when you cross the border and the connectivity or lack of connectivity when you get uh, to to China. But I'm happy to report that not quite a teenager, but one of our our, uh, colleagues, uh, Emma, who was in charge of sorting out all of the various uh, technical needs uh, that we need to communicate 
from China uh, has just arrived in Shenzhen, uh, and she was able to communicate across normal channels. Uh, and she set me up before she set off on the train. So all good. Isabel, you have now become the tech expert in the room. <laughs> what advice to Tyler? Uh, well, the, the traditional advice is don't take uh, your laptop or your f- phone into China because you will acquire a lot of interesting new uh, uh, but unseen applications if you do that. Um, but the, the thing that I found most infuriating in China in recent years was that everything, all of life has gone digital, so it's very hard to use cash at all. And if you don't have a Chinese uh, uh, telephone account or a Chinese bank account, it became almost impossible to call a taxi, have a meal, you know, unless somebody was with you who could organize and pay for it. I think it's eased off a little bit because they are now allowing some things to be linked to foreign credit cards. But it's, it's kind of, you know, that moment when you realize how much you depend on easy communications and then they're not there. So deep breath, Tyler. I'm sure Emma will look after you. Uh, keep smiling, stay calm. And it's it's only a short trip. Tyler, please don't ask me to fix your Chinese communication problems. Well, no, I, but we do, we do need to find someone to sweep all my devices before, before I... Uh, get back or at least once, once, once I cross the border because as you said who knows what I'm going to pick up while I'm there but Isabel you raise an interesting point and this was something which has come up um, with a number of people I've spoken to that this this notion of course that in China um, you know, it is a bubble within a bubble in terms of, of payment systems as you say communication platforms everything um, it is well and truly a closed circuit in that sense but there's the other issue too as you said this move to a digital um, society that Again, and this is a theme we come back to at Monocle again and again, China also, it's not just Japan that everyone sort of points to, China has an aging society. And there's also an issue there as well of people being left behind because they're not digitized. Um, and so you can give your Chinese granny or, or grandfather um, a mobile device, um, but it has been a topic talking to people in Hong Kong, who of course have relatives um, in China, and, and it presents a real problem. Are we finding this is a, this is the case? Well, it's happening in the United Kingdom as well from personal experience. I am now um, my mother's manager, my total manager, everything from shopping to paying bills to absolutely everything, because she just doesn't want to be bothered. And frankly, David, who could blame her? I, I agree, and I, I, it is it is a you know a curious case that you'd think that you know some countries um, would have would have learned by now that uh, you know you you know as much as we don't like call centers uh, and being in phone trees uh, that there is going to be a need, and if we're going to really come good on being inclusive, then maybe we should include people who are over sixty five or seventy. Whoever thought that we would be we would be longing for the day when of a call center? How's life in Hong Kong? Uh, life in Hong Kong is good. Uh, that sort of feeling of um, of late autumn here, which still means it's about 26 or 27 uh, degrees. And I have to say, I think what we've checked in a, a couple of times from Hong Kong across this year, uh, Emma, I think I came back here the first time in um, March, I guess it was, uh, post, um, you know, post-pandemic. And you know, it has been generally quite sleepy. There's been that sense of you know, that, that great sort of love and, and almost that, that sense of just missing that, that incredible buzz that this place has always had. And it's not quite bounced back in the way uh, that, that maybe many would have hoped. Of course, there was also many, many issues leading up to, of course, the pandemic as well, which impacted Hong Kong. But I have to say, this is, I think, trip number five this year, four or five. Um, and it does feel like it's it's creeping back ever so slightly. Just you see more traffic. You Well, I say more traffic. You just see 
there's 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 more international more international faces um, here in the market. I mean, you you see, of course, there's people from the Gulf doing business. There's certainly a lot of, of tourists actually from the Middle East at the moment, um, and then you hear a few more Aussie accents that probably don't live here um, as as much as maybe a couple of more you know, U.S. cruise ships uh, pulling into the harbors, etc. But there seems to be a little bit more of that buzz that's been lacking in hotel lobbies. And hotel lobbies, you know, in, in many ways being the living room for this city, that sort of that great sense of, of, of trade and, and the serendipity of, of bumping into people in lobbies, etc. Um, that feels like it's coming back. And I mean, were we, are we looking at this for the long term or are people still being sort of long term cautious about, about this? Because, you know, as you say, you've been several times this year. We're now in October and we're still talking about Hong Kong's efforts to bounce back. One, one would have hoped that such a dynamic place probably would have a bit more gas in its tank. Yeah, well, at least it's got some gas in its tank uh, because it really felt like it was sputtering early on. But uh, I, I, I do get a sense that you know, there have been people who have been, who've just been reticent to come back uh, it's probably not. It's not been sort of their their top, you know, four or five city uh, as you've been getting back out on the road again. Uh, do I rush to Hong Kong? Maybe not. Uh, but I think that has changed. I think also, in, you know, just going back to maybe what Isabel was saying, not on the other side of the border, I think there is also probably a little bit of a misunderstanding that also people think when they come to Hong Kong that they also need to um, have their phones swept. Well, maybe, maybe they do. Uh, but Western communications uh, work perfectly fine here. But I've, I've been amazed and I've been speaking to people who you think are reasonably informed also feel that, oh, actually it's very difficult that even my... I have to use Alipay when I come here, that my MasterCard won't work in Hong Kong. That's definitely not the case. Um, there's a, an article in Bloomberg from a couple of weeks ago talking about the amount of money that tourists are now spending in Hong Kong and saying that actually mainland tourists, and it makes a very, very stark uh, comparison. It says instead of um, flaunting Hermes bags when they're having their photographs taken for whatever social media hell they're deciding to subscribe to, um, they're actually holding up McDonald's takeout bags because they're not spending as much. I mean, is there a spent sense that people are sort of deciding to come to Hong Kong to spend or is it much more low key? Well, I think you know, part of the, the problem, maybe one of the challenges is that you have an emptying out of the city on the part of many locals at the weekend uh, who are all heading to Shenzhen. Uh, and and this is you know I've heard this but you know talking to several families, several people in business uh, that you know also that, you know it, it's very close. You can get there 15 minutes on a high speed uh, train. Uh, it's quite easy as a Hong Konger to zip back and forth. And so there's fascination of going you know to to a new city which you know just lies beyond the hills here. Um, so that's been I think one of the challenges. But if I if I look around, I'm just and this is just you know not looking at Bloomberg or reading the South China Morning Post. Um, there is, and I'm, I said I'm standing at, at Pacific Place right now. If I go one level down, there seems to be plenty of traffic. There's plenty of queues out in front of the Laura Piana shop, out in front of Chanel, out in front of Louis Vuitton. So people are spending. I can't tell if, if they're coming from uh, the mainland, uh, but they're not customers from the Gulf. I mean, these are definitely uh, Chinese, Chinese consumers uh, from, from within the region. Isabel, you want to add to that? Yeah, I think I think in the, it's good to know that you know Hong Kong's reviving a bit. I think in the longer term, the the kind of social and political and cultural mix of Hong Kong really hit a watershed with the national security law, and it's going to take a long time before we kind of understand uh, the the depths of those changes. So you've got civil society people relocating to Taiwan, you've got business people relocating to Singapore, you've got a, a, a bit of you know doom and gloom in the cultural front. Um, because of of very 
very much harsher censorship than before, the education systems being brought into line with the mainland. And, you know, Beijing's stated ambition for Hong Kong is, is much greater integration into the Pearl River Delta economy, which I, I guess will happen over the longer term, that the young people will be encouraged to see their opportunities on mainland China rather than as part of that absolutely extraordinary international mix that Hong Kong was. I mean, there will still be an international element to Hong Kong, but the balance, I think, has definitely shifted. Tyler, you said that people are going to Shenzhen. Is that what is that? Are you getting the, the impression, you know, just walking around of what Isabel was just saying there? Well, I think also, you know, Israel raised a point about in- integration into the region. And you've had a number of calls on the part of you know, various chambers of commerce representing, you know, the interests of other you know, nations, be they, you know, EU countries uh, or, or maybe a little bit uh, closer within the Asia-Pacific rim uh, and also consulates as well who want to see more integration on the part of Hong Kong when it comes to doing business, uh, you know, within the Delta or the Great Bay region. Uh, and so, you know, Shenzhen is a very, is a, is a good, uh, is a good example that you know people you know if you're coming doing business and you're coming from France or you might be arriving from Australia, you know, oftentimes you're only getting a single entry visa, uh, and so there is a, a call, there is a discussion, certainly on the part of even the chief executive here, you know, talking to to Beijing, but I think also particularly to bigger cities in the region in terms of how can there be a little bit more. Uh, ease of access, a bit more, you know, fluidity when it comes to to, to transport, um, in terms of getting back and forth, because you know Shenzhen is incredibly uh, close, and these cities are t- you know tethered together. Uh, but if you only have a single access visa, you've got to go back to, of course, uh, the, you know, the, the China visa office again, because you've been, yeah, I don't know, because your business is going well, and you have to do a bit of a follow up. You know, then it becomes incredibly complicated. So I think also, if the Hong Kong story is going to work, if Hong Kong still continues, even with Beijing's blessing, to be that you know, Western point of entry, albeit not the same one that it always was, but it's still going to be that place which is a little bit on the outside, then it probably needs that type of, of springboard, certainly when it comes to visas, ease of access of doing business within the region. David, do you want to add to this? Yeah, I, I think there's actually a deep uh, principle going on, kind of linking what we were saying about the internet with what we're saying about Hong Kong. You know, a a while ago, people thought that technology would always get better and better, and society would always go in a straight line getting better and better. The Internet spreads more widely. You say, wow, can I pick up the Internet here? Can I pick up there? We like the idea that it would spread widely. But in fact, what we are finding that, as you were saying, Emma, that old people might be left out of the Internet or people from different countries might be left out in one area, it allows great central control. And what's happening with Hong Kong is a similar thing. A large, powerful state is using its ability, which technology today really helps to sort of force integration and reduce diversity, which maybe wasn't what was desired a while ago, but which technology, unless we fight hard against, is pulling us towards. Tyler, I'm aware your uh, evening needs to begin in a moment. So before we let you go, you need to tell us about the most important event of the week, which is Halloween. How's it going over there? (laughs) Uh, It it is remarkable, isn't it? You know, I always, you know, should we blame it or credit Hallmark uh, as, as, you know, the company uh, which is most responsible uh, for, you know, the export uh, of, of Halloween, or is it just large pockets of Americans, I'll throw Canadians in there as well, the expat communities that are responsible for it. But I was amazed you know, last night, uh, you know, Saturday evening, uh, or, you know, the Saturday before, uh, of course, Halloween, and it was just incredible seeing people coming off the MTR, um, you know, and, and both, you know, uh, Western expats and, and, and much more so Hong Kongers as well, 
dressed up as toothpaste tubes, uh, you know, various, you know, which, you know, I don't know, try, try to walk through uh, central um, in, in a very, especially at the bottom of a toothpaste tube is, is rather tight. So you have to have a, a bit of a, um, an, odd, an odd shuffle um, as well. But you know, people are well into it. And, we, I just, and, and also we're talking people who are also north of 30, north of 40, maybe even north of 50, which I don't know. I just think if I was in the center of London uh, or Geneva, uh, yeah, I just, I would, I, you wouldn't see that. But they were really going for it. I think it was quite busy, you know, up around Hollywood Road, Lang Tui Fong last night. Um, and I was just, again, walking through Pacific Place, lots of, you know, kids with bunny ears, uh, lots of painted faces. Um, and that's not just sort of mishaps at the makeup counter. Indeed. I mean, well, I, I take your toothpaste tube and my son is going as a six foot two inflatable dinosaur and I'm going as a pigeon on Tuesday night. So um, so north of whatever age. Unfortunately, it seems that we're all going down this path and I always vowed I'd never, ever participate in it. But it does seem absolutely overwhelmingly attractive to do. Well, I've, I've got no choice with this. Tyler, do you have a costume for Tuesday or will you have escaped to Shenzhen by that stage? I, I will be uh, in Shenzhen in full Western dress. I do have to say, though, with, this is also the fascinating thing about you know being in in this part of the world where you're a little bit out of, of course, the what, what can we say? You're, you're just you're a little bit out of sort of the the Anglo bubble of of hysteria, being reactionary, etc. There is no problem with cultural appropriation in Hong Kong. Let me tell you, you you can go as whatever you like, and I, and and I don't think anyone's shaming anybody here. So uh, I, I saw all kinds of um, extraordinary outfits, which you know it, people would have been up in arms anywhere else in the world, not here. Wonderful. Tyler, thank you so much for joining us on the line from Hong Kong. That was our editorial director uh, bringing us the latest news from there. Uh, what's everybody going as as Halloween this year? I mean, th- this is nuts, isn't it? This is this is when you really, I really show my age and go, when I was young, we just had apple bobbing. Um, and and now, literally, true, yes. I've just ordered a latex pigeon head to do trick-or-treating with my six-foot-two inflatable dinosaur son. Where did this go wrong? Where did the wheels fall off? David, have you, just I, I tell, help it's... us. It, it turns out it's actually my fault uh, uh, because uh, a number of years ago, we only had a large piece of wood and a, uh, and a mop with lots of bristles, which I attached to the piece of wood. And people said, what's that? I said, well, it's a toothbrush. And there is a correspondent from China who was filming me. And that's why everybody in Hong Kong is now dressing as toothpaste tubes. <laughs> they're, 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 so it's my They're waiting for fault. your toothbrush. <laughs> right. Okay. I, so I'm going to flee abroad. I'm not going oh, to. Where yes. are you going to? I'm going to Berlin. But I, my, my most traumatic memory of, of Halloween was passing through Miami Airport on Halloween, where the entire <laughs> airport was in costume. And it was very, I had to, I had to check in with a gorilla. That's amazing, because if you just think when you're going through security, you have to practically take, depending on which airport you're in. Um, Yes. Thank you, Birmingham International Airport, for practically making me strip off to nothing. Everything has to come off. But when you're going in with the bunny ears, with the... With a six-foot-tall inflatable dinosaur. When you're going through like that, I mean, who would travel in costume? <laughs> well, it was mainly, the, to be fair, it was mainly the staff. Oh, right, OK. <laughs> yeah. Rather uh, than right. the passengers. Uh, uh, Orson Welles, the great director, tells the story. He was uh, directing a film and is starring in A Touch of Evil. And the costume people dressed him up in the worst possible way, making him look really old and wrinkly and terrible with awful clothes. Uh, he went to a dinner after a shooting one day, and he didn't have time to change out of his clothes. And he got there because he was a big, powerful director. And when they opened the door, people said, Orson, baby, you look great. You look great. <laughs> he said, that's Hollywood. Let's move on to the news. Um, 
It, it is impossible to even fathom what is happening in Gaza at the moment. Who wants to begin with that, David? The uh, One way of looking at it is to imagine different headlines. And the complexity, uh, Isaiah Berlin at Oxford for a long time said, there's different ways of looking at the world and each can be correct. That's our curse. That's why politics is so necessary to resolve these genuinely different views. So one set of headlines coming out from the Middle East could be Israeli bombs are landing in civilian neighborhoods and killing innocent people. That's a fully accurate headline. Uh, another sort of headline coming out of the Middle East could be Hamas still refuses to release the children and old people it kidnapped and encourages the official destruction of all Jews in Israel, whether civilian or not. Both sets of headlines, sadly, could be true. Isabel. I think it's also true to say that infants and incubators are not terrorists and they need power and they need, if they are to be moved, they need to be have somewhere to go. You know, there, I, I think there, an impossible situation has been created in Gaza over many years, but also, you know, acutely, clearly uh, in the last three weeks. And I think there's a real risk for Israel in this. You know, I, I understand the anger and the rage at the horror of what happened. But you have to think beyond the, you know, the immediate response, which looks more and more like vengeance. And to think, well, OK, but those people are still going to exist. You know, the Gaza Strip is still going to exist. And what are you creating uh, by this response and this degree of punishment of an entire population? It seems like an existential fight for both Israel and for Hamas here, doesn't it, David? Uh, curiously, uh, uh, that's, um, uh, that I would slightly disagree on. Um, uh, uh, Hamas could, uh, um, if Hamas said, we're not going to, we're going to change our charter, we don't want to exterminate this other population, and we're going to not initiate uh, these actions, then there might be some uh, fanatics in Israel who say, I hate them all. But that's a teeny, teeny number. Uh, for Israel at the moment, it is existential. There's this large group that has been using a lot of resources for weapons. Um, I would switch back. Again, there's many analogies. You can have some analogies from the past that push one way, some another. When I was a young man in my 20s, when I lived in France, there were a lot of people who had survived the uh, bombings uh, by uh, RAF planes around in Normandy and also in Marseille in 1944, when Britain and America and other countries were getting ready to invade uh, France to push uh, Germany away. And I think the number of uh, uh, French civilians who were killed in those bombings, I think it was similar or greater than all the Brits who were killed in the Blitz in uh, 1940 and, uh, and then the years afterwards. And I met the uh, families of some of the survivors, especially a family from uh, Marseille. And they said it was terribly sad uh, to lose these relatives, but they understood why the RAF was doing that. Let's talk about the way that the, the international community is, is, is reacting to this. We already have um, the Turkish president, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, saying that what Israel is doing is, is, is tantamount to war crimes. And as a result, Israel has recalled its ambassadors um, from, from Turkey. Um, we have, I mean, one gets the sense here that we don't know where we're going, but... but in the long term, in terms of the fact that the fault lines will deepen and deepen and deepen, won't they, Isabel? I think that's a big danger, and I think that that if there is no um, if there is no negotiation, if there is no way forward that is other than war, then we are in a very very serious risk of this war widening. If that is seen by both sides as the only option, and we're seeing 
the likes of Russia hosting Hamas and China also not necessarily being courted, but China has got skin in this game as well, hasn't it? So you have the two enormous, you have, well, the three enormous superpowers. You have the United States, you have Russia, and you have China, all playing an enormous role in this. Yes, China was was trying to play a relatively even-handed role before the Hamas attack. Uh, you know, the, it... it had it was on very friendly terms with Israel Netanyahu was due to visit Beijing uh, but it's at the same time China is the you know biggest purchaser of oil uh, in the gulf from from all the gulf states and it has very close political relations uh, with Iran for example so what china tends to do is sit on the sidelines saying you know play nicely everybody we want peace without really doing very much to bring it about. And we've seen exactly the same behavior in Ukraine, where if anyone could uh, exert influence on Putin, it's Xi Jinping. But we see very little sign of it, except for the Chinese saying, well, we told him not to launch a nuclear war, for which I'm sure we're all grateful. But, you know, you feel there is more to be done. Um, but China isn't doing it. So uh, it, it has influence, but it chooses really not to use it. David. Uh, that pivot point where China can go in either direction, I think that ties in with what you were saying, Emma, that we're at a, a point we don't know what's going to happen. So many of the uh, Sunni states in, uh, in the Middle East, or uh, majority Sunni states, will officially say that they're against Israel very much here. But uh, many diplomats suggest that uh, what they're privately saying is, we want to reduce Iranian influence. So we have all sorts of different directions that might, uh, you know, when a wave hits the edge of a shore, if it hits at a right angle, we know how it's going to crash. If it hits at a jutting angle, we don't know what's going to happen. So there might be a sort of Arab solidarity, which could open up the Middle East in one way. There might be a Sunni-Shiite split, which could be magnified, which would open up in a very different way. All of those could happen simultaneously as well. Yes. So uh, uh, we talk about unleashing the dogs of war as uh, just the sheer violence, which, of course, is very powerful. But the unintended consequences, the way they swirl and twirl around, nobody would have anticipated the world of 1946 in 1939. Or, uh, or the Middle East uh, 20 years after uh, the U.S. invasions in, in Iraq or Afghanistan. When one couldn't have imagined, looking back, everything makes sense. Oh, I see. If you reduce the Sunni control in Iraq, they might go towards ISIS, etc. But at the time, nobody could foresee it coming forward. Uh, the question is, again, this is where good politi political leadership is crucial. As these uh, things develop forward, you want the best minds to calmly try to shape it a little bit. You can't um, uh, create the, the beds entirely of where the river is flowing, but you can adjust locks and dams a little bit. Where uh, do we look in history for this? Because you, you, you've mentioned several wars in the 20th century which, which had unintended long-term consequences. Yeah, so there the, uh, the current American uh, uh, Secretary of uh, Defense um, uh, gave a very nice speech to the Naval Academy a while ago, and he listed some of the uh, battles that the U.S. was famously involved in, and he said, and there's many other battles which I'm not going to name, uh, which I'm not going to name, because they never took place. Because the U.S. Navy, he was at the Naval Academy, because of course he would say it, because carrier fleets deterred action. Now, we know that could be overdone. Uh, British gunboats were often counterproductive in the 19th century. Carrier fleets can give a great arrogance to Washington, D.C. On the other hand, who knows what the uh, Gerald Ford uh, nuclear carrier off Lebanon is making people cautious about unleashing Hezbollah. So wise leadership can actually... So in answer to your question, we know terrible events have slid out of control. World War I, World War II, uh, the, the American invasion of Iraq. But we also 
it's hard to see the times when skillful use of uh, potential force stopped dangers or skillful diplomacy. We have a new world, though, don't we, insofar as we are global now in a way that perhaps we weren't even two decades ago. We were global before the First World War, actually, and, and people argued in the same way that countries that, that trade with each other to the degree that, that, that Britain and Germany, for example, did, uh, don't go to war. I, I think we know that's actually not true. If, 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 if countries want to go to war, they'll go to war. But I think from, you know, David's absolutely right about what, what's important in this kind of uh, melee, and we don't know where it's going, is to keep creating new conversations that can at least point a way forward. Because without the conversations, there is no alternative to the violence. And one of the big unknowns in the future is the degree to which the United States will continue to play that policing role or will be able to play that policing role. Because, you know, we're seeing a big push against it, in, as there has been in the past, in American domestic politics. And if there are wars that weren't fought because a carrier group turned up uh, from the United States. Well, who's going to send a carrier group in future? Because, you know, the powers that could are not necessarily the powers that you would wish to see deploying carrier groups around the world in order to enforce their will. And I think there are real... uh, you know, profound uncertainties in the geopolitical shifts that we're in the middle of. And this ties and in with the, the end of um, reserve currencies in the world. The switch from a, a, so from Spanish currency to British and the switch in the 20th century from British currency to what was going to be. Was going to be the German currency or the American? When a great power uh, reduces its, uh, its control, when the apex predator goes away, there's a deep principle from ecology that chaos reigns. All sorts of things open up if you take um, uh, grizzly bears or lions away from their ecosystems. A huge number of fresh permutations arise. Um, It happens often when empires are still very large. Britain was at its weakest when it physically seemed to be at its strongest. The largest royal navy and the most powerful royal navy in history was at a time when it was weak underneath and they didn't know how to use it. The U.S. might be there now. There's also a destabilizing effect domestically across the world, isn't there? I mean, we see the United States helping Israel, but at the same time we have tens if not hundreds of thousands of people in New York yesterday taking part of a pro-Palestine march. Same thing happening here in the United yes. Kingdom. And and this is the, this idea that it is a war which is a long way away from lots of people, yet it will profoundly affect the way that country's domestic policies policies are going to be shaped. Uh, uh, very, very much. And uh, I, I feel uh, fearful that what you just described might not be possible in a few years. You described accurate information about what's happening in New York and what's happening with U.S. foreign policy. On Twitter, uh, I'll call it Twitter to use the, the name with which is better known, as you know, Elon Musk has reduced the uh, links to major news services. The New York Times, Washington Post, uh, uh, um, uh, things like that, where the correspondents tend to know Uh, multiple languages and have good experience on the ground. Uh, There was one uh, uh, um, uh, source that uh, Elon Musk recommended who turned out, the Washington Post found out, was an 18-year-old boy living in southwest London who got over 100 million hits on false information that he just put out in a really charming way with, with good videos and links. So the sort of the calm assessment uh, that, that you just gave, many people aren't even aware of. Uh, they're trying to make judgments without accurate information. 
We're also seeing um, a challenge, not just from demonstrations in the street or from 16-year-old boys in their bedrooms, but we're seeing a, a real challenge to national um, ambitions, priorities across the globe from insurgent parties. So in Germany, the AFD, for example, which is pro-Putin, uh, anti-war in Ukraine, anti climate action, the right wing of the Republican Party, if there is another wing of the Republican Party anymore, um, also challenging you know, the fundamental foreign policy as it's being pursued. Uh, France, you know, er everywhere you look, you see insurgent political parties taking a very, very different approach. And they're sitting on top of misinformation and disinformation. And this sense that... Uh, it's not necessarily that you believe something different, but that you can't believe in anything. And that's very profoundly damaging for democracy. And you will see opinions and beliefs being siloed even more intensely as a result of that, not least because of what is happening in, on the ground. I, th I think it was Barack Obama this week warned that if, we continue, if, if Israel persists in doing what it is doing, it will not solve the problem. It will, in fact, harden views of yeah. Palestinians against Israel uh, uh, for generations. And and if you have nothing but you know the the, the incredibly focused, targeted social media messages coming out, this will do nothing to help people a get more human, you know, gain a degree of human empathy, but also just to get a wider view of what's going on and to totally. learn to see a different uh, opinion. Totally, a, a, a calm perspective. Uh, we were Isabel and I were speaking earlier about um, uh, the the role of oligarchs uh, in the world today. Eris, uh, uh, the notion of oligarchs doesn't just come from Russia and the in uh, the end of communism. Aristotle talked about it that when there's turmoil in ordinary societies, it's very easy for those with power, either financial power or other power, to take over, often by pretending to make an alliance with those at the bottom. Do you want to elaborate? Absolutely. And the, uh, well, you see this with a uh, populist approach, you know, to, uh, Trump is, I mean, there are very interesting categorizations of oligarchs. And an oligarch is really somebody who manages to combine money and political power. So different from a plutocrat, if you like. And we are in a, a position globally where we have, uh, oligarchs have, there are more of them and they have more power than they have for 100 years. And this is very, very worrying. They are people like Elon Musk. Uh, you know, 2% of Elon Musk's wealth would solve global hunger. You know, we are seeing those extra, we have seen this extraordinary transfer of wealth to very, very few hands. All of global problems need money. The money is held by th this tiny group of very powerful people who then re-engineer the system in order to perpetuate their power and their money. Indeed, in the last 24 hours, Mr. Musk has come out by saying that he will um, help with uh, satellite communications for those in Gaza whose communications networks were, were cut off on Saturday and that he will come in and make sure that official aid organizations will be able to talk to each other. Yeah, well, you good for the, him. You know, but the fact is that, that the American space uh, uh, mission now essentially depends on Elon Musk. This is extraordinary power. And he cut off uh, communications in uh, for Ukraine in advance or when Ukraine wanted to do a, a stealth attack on the Russian Navy. He cut off the communications. So this yes. man has absolutely extraordinary power. You're listening to Monocle on Sunday with me, Emma Nelson, joined in the studio by Isabel Hilton and David Badanis. Let's head northeast to Finland and we can join our correspondent Petri Bertsov, who's joining us from the Helsinki Book Festival. A very good morning to you, Petri. 
Good morning, Emma. How are you? Where are you? And tell us what you can see. This is radio, after all. Paint some pictures with your words. Yes, so I'm standing sort of in the middle of a large fairground hall here uh, in at the Helsinki Book Fair. I'm not ex- exaggerating if I say I'm surrounded by tens of thousands of people. Um, I mean, we're talking about Helsinki Book Fair. It's one of the largest literature festivals in Europe, a four-day event that attracts close to 100,000 visitors. Um, and and what, it, what is interesting here is that it's... Uh, you know, uh, not only a sort of if you compare it with um, ordinary book fairs, which are quite often um, sort of industry events or or then this kind of meet and greet the authors kind of kind of events. This is actually, I mean, kind of tying into your conversation about what social media is not and, 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 and could be, you know, it, it's just a large discussion forum uh, with I, I think that it's close to a, a thousand sort of authors and academics, decision makers, business leaders taking part in this in these hundreds and hundreds of, of talks. And yes, they have something to do with the books, but I mean, they go beyond that. It's, it's really this kind of a social political event where, where, where book lovers of, of Finland, Finland um, um, gather. And, I, I, and just to, to sort of put it into context, what, I, what makes it even more remarkable, in my opinion, is that these are all, I mean, this is a very local events. I mean, there's a few sort of international guest speakers as well, but the, but the audience, the visitors to this fair are almost all um, locals and it's very much geared towards uh, uh, the domestic audience. Because in Helsinki, or in Finland at least, you love a good read, is that right? Yeah, so, you know, print, um, you know, there's all this talk about, you know, the, the death of print and so on, but I mean, in Finland, print is is still doing well and, and Finns are among the most avid readers in Europe. And I think this has a lot to do with, one, our wonderful library network. Um, I think it really plays a role. I mean, every municipality in Finland has its own library with a very well-curated selection of books. Then we also read a lot in, in, in school. So, you know, as, as proof of that, book sales are strong in Finland, are, are, you know, um, kind of bucking the trend. Book sales are actually growing um, growing in this country. And and this book fair where I'm standing right now, I'm just looking around, seeing all these stands by Finland's largest publishers. It's all print. It's all There's almost nothing digital here. It's just a, a giant celebration of, of print. I, I love it. I mean, you've got 900 talks you mentioned there. I mean, in the middle of this giant celebration of print, where on earth do you begin? I know, I know, right? So what I, what I used to do, uh, this was... Uh, before uh, kids so, so I would come here for the four days and have sort of a schedule of all the talks that I want to go to and you could I'm, I'm not I'm not joking you could come here in the morning and leave in the evening and 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 you know you would have a jam-packed schedule of, of interesting talks uh, to attend to now I have to be a little bit more selective but I for example I've been listening to uh, the uh, famous Guardian journalist Luke Harding he gave a talk about uh, his experiences as a, as a foreign correspondent in Ukraine I went to a talk by the Russian exiled author Mikhail Shishkin, who spoke about what happens in Russia after uh, the war in Ukraine. And this, by the way, this was the guy who predicted the, the Ukraine war several years before before it happened. Um, but then I also I took part in Finland has a presidential election taking place next year. So all the candidates were um, were uh, participated in this in this panel where they spoke about what power means to them and their sort of favorite books about uh, about uh, power and then i have to one one more thing i have to add if i i may you know it's it's all about these like scheduled events that you go to but then 
what I really love is these like serendipitous events that you just sort of like walk into and start listening to what what's going on here. So so I, I went to this one one talk uh, where I think it was a psychologist who had written a book about how to stop uh, procrastinating and, and how to get get things uh, get things done. I thought that was quite uh, uh, interesting. Yes, given the fact that you probably were on your way somewhere else where you got diverted by the how to stop procrastinating uh, <laughs> conversation. Patrick, can I bring in David Badanis, uh, our lovely panellist, and also a man who's taken his son to the Helsinki Book Fair. David, you uh, your face lit up when I told you that we were going here, didn't it? Yes, uh, Helsinki was one of the... Uh, uh, I've been there several times. My publishers have been great. Uh, the first time I went there, uh, my lad was 12. And when we got to the hotel room, I said... Kid, you got to explore and come up with something fresh. And he explored the room and he came back and said, Dad, there is an entire refrigerator in this room. And I traveled a lot before and I was very jaded. And you always assume there's a little bar and a little refrigerator in your room and you're not excited about it. So I saw the whole thing through his eyes. And what I loved about the Helsinki uh, Book Fair, uh, Finnish people are different from most human beings on planet Earth. <laughs> Many of them are convinced they're an alien life form who've landed here. Uh, a few people interpret bits of the language, not much. And basically, they live in little closed bubbles. The idea of a perfect holiday where you don't see anybody and you're proud of it rather than embarrassed. So that's, I think, the essence of good, strong Finns. Yet they go to this book fair, and what they do is they find community, groups, solace. And to see the delight when these people open up and smile was gave me immense pleasure. Petri, how much of an accurate description is that? I mean, I'm not sure you can libel a country, but but can you but, but has David just done you a disservice or or, or a very paid you a very nice compliment? No, no, I, I think David has a very good point that we we are not the most social people and we like our <laughs> alone time but i think it's also one factor that contributes to why we read so much because we just like spending time indoors especially with the long dark winter when when it's really too cold to really venture outside it's just so nice to stay inside indoors with a you know a fireplace and a, and a nice book and you know the winter is so long so we can go through dozens of books <laughs> tell me do you have any sort of light bulb manufacturers displaying at the helsinki book fair <laughs> no no there there aren't not that i have seen but there are <laughs> which is really interesting like there's a there's this local bed manufacturer that was uh, sort of uh, displaying its beds. So I think it has something to do with sort of people reading in before they go to bed. So wh- why not come to <laughs> come to the book fair and show the latest in bed technology? Can I make an observation? Yes, please do. Uh, as an example of the uh, Finnish uh, fetishness on reading, which I as an author strongly support, you show a bed in a country of many fit, beautiful people. And your assumption is you go there with your spouse and you... Read. <laughs> really? <laughs> I, have, I have another reading-related question for Finns. Has anyone cracked the abiding mystery of how to read in a sauna without the book falling to bits? Uh, no, no, I have to I have to say sauna is a place where we really don't don't read or <laughs> for that matter, we don't, really do, we don't really do anything else there either. It's just a place where it's it's almost like a spiritual experience you go, to go into a, 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 a sauna for us. So we just like to go there. And our least favorite thing to do in a sauna is to talk with other people. So it's a very awkward situation to be in a sauna with people you don't know because you just it's not a place where you would make small. Well, I mean, mind you, we, would, we don't make small talk anywhere, but the least in the sauna. David, your thoughts on that? Uh, Can I just say I love Finnish people? My publisher at one point when I went to his house said, David, would you like to engage in biochemical warfare? And I said, 
maybe? Because <laughs> he seemed really nice. He said, yes, we are made of biology, and this pillow I'm holding my hands is chemistry. So he started hitting me with his pillow. Uh, my 12-year-old and I started hitting him back. And I thought, I've visited publishers in their homes around the world. This was the most welcoming experience I'd had in my life. Pashi, what books are you bringing back from the Helsinki Book Fair? Oh, my goodness. Uh, I think we are running out of the show before, before I can list all of them. I have about... Uh, 15 at least. I bought one on uh, the history of the city of Vibri, which was which we lost to uh, uh, Soviet Union in the war, in the Winter War. Um, and it was Finland's second biggest really multicultural city. I'm really intrigued by, by, um, by the history. Then I bought a book about a, a lady. Who, this is a fiction book. Uh, a book about a lady who dreams of a of summer and and opening her own bed and breakfast in in the summer so it's just i thought it would be something nice to read in the in the dark winter to dream about a, a summer and then lots of other books about war and society and and you know a, a lot of books always Petri Burtsov, thank you so much as ever for joining us from the helsinki book fair you're listening to monocle on sunday joining me around the table david badanis and isabel hilton uh, isabel you you sort of brought a selection of topics you want to talk about today what was it that you well where should we go next or should we continue with the oligarchs because you sort of picked up on on this idea of that that sort of amazing fusion of power and money and you you have two kinds of oligarchs don't you You have those who start off with political power and amass enormous amounts of money which is arguably vladimir putin or you have the other kind the immensely rich who then amass enormous amounts of power power. we're talking about Elon Musk Um, and the fact that Elon Musk is not a politician and yet there was a really good article wasn't there that I think you want to draw our attention to in the FT weekend is Simon Cooper talking about the rise of the oligarchs yes and and he he, it's actually it's a book review there's been quite a lot of writing about oligarchs which has tried to you know draw attention to this phenomenon and and its importance Um, and that you know I guess the oligarchs that we think of are when we mention oligarchs, tend to be the Russians who, in this, you know, the biggest transfer of wealth in human history at the end of the Soviet Union, just appropriated the the, the economy of of of, uh, of what that was what became Russia, and had political power, but it was utterly contingent on the favour of the regime. So what we see in Musk is not so much that we see somebody who through his uh, through his wealth has acquired a political power that that actually governments find very very hard to constrain and you see that these areas of dependence for example that we mentioned the US space program which is now hugely dependent on him um, but also the the fact that uh, for instance the tech billionaires who have power in the sense that they control platforms which create public opinion and their views are ultra-libertarian and often quite eccentric. I mean, I don't think that these are in any sense representative views, but because of the power that they have to distribute or influence public opinion, their views have attraction uh, that, um, that they wouldn't if they were not uh, rich and powerful people. And that's that's really a problem because, you know, in a democracy, and I think the conclusion of the beast was this is a very important uh, threat to democracy. Um, the, the the makers of the American, the framers of the American Constitution were also worried about this. You know, the idea that rich people would in the end bend government to their will is again what we're seeing.
David, you, I mean, you've written a book about this kind of thing, the art of fairness, is it the power of decency in, in a world turned mean. Yeah. Um, do you need to rewrite it, given the fact that this is happening really quickly, isn't it? Yes. It, uh, there, there's times famously when the world is similar from five years before to five years later and times when it's very changing. Uh, and, and now is one of those times. Uh, two thoughts about oligarchs. Uh, Aristotle quoting him again, he once said that smart people, uh, rich, sorry, that rich people think they're smart because smart people sit at their feet looking up to them. And we see that with the quote-unquote foundations that oligarchs have set up. They're constantly told beautiful, benevolent things. The other one is uh, what you were saying earlier about Elon Musk might do some things with satellites that you like, but he might do some things with satellites that you don't like. And why does he, out of 8 billion people, have these decisions? Uh, There's somebody I knew who left the uh, Bill Gates's uh, foundation uh, that deals with uh, public health around the world. He loved the work that the Gates Foundation was doing. He thought it was doing excellent work. And I said, why did you leave? And he said, because Gates shouldn't be the one to decide where his money goes. If I'm a billionaire and I use my work for good or bad, I'm not, I'm, and I use all the tax dodges to, uh, uh, to not pay uh, 40% taxes or whatever they are. I'm basically saying, I do not trust democratic institutions. I don't trust it, how it would work. And so then the ordinary person looking at that will think, oh, maybe they shouldn't trust democratic institutions either. Democratic institutions are one of the only ways to funnel strong feelings uh, aside from riots and demonstrations. Large marches are a symbolic representation of voting. Uh, Voting is basically in the old days, if you would have 600 people fight, if there are 300 on each side, uh, it could be a terrible fight. If there were 500 people standing in a field and on one side and 100 on the other, you don't actually have to have the fight. It's clear they would win. Voting is a sort of a shorthand for that. Same thing with marches and demonstrations. It's a shorthand for voting, but the oligarchs take us even further away from voting. And it makes people think, why bother? Well, I mean, it does beg the question about the power of protest, because we have seen so many incidents of protest in the last 10 years, which the, the, have come the, to nothing. The, the immense protest before the Iraq war, which even Tony Blair, deep inside his heart, he must know that if he had listened to it, the world would have been much better. And... Staying with you, David, on the idea of oligarchs, this is not a new thing. There have been very rich people, mainly men, over centuries, if not millennia, who have courted the powerful in order to gain influence. So how is this so different now? I think what's happening is that when you see uh, the era in which you grow up, we tend to think that it's infinite. You can study history or listen to older people and realize that it wasn't always infinitely like that, but we tend to think it was permanent. Uh, I believe the, uh, uh, I think it's well justified that uh, much of the 20th century, especially after 1945, was a blip. Before that, what's the definition of power? It's the ability to move things around. Um, it's only very brief that a large-scale democracy with uh, uh, the, the labor of ordinary people being important, both workers and middle-class uh, cognitive thinkers and stuff, uh, was so strong that uh, the, the extremes of, of other power was pushed away. So in a sense, in the way that we, we talked earlier about uh, China's a huge, powerful nation in the world now, as it always has been. There was a two-century blip when it wasn't. It's kind of we returning to kind of where it should be. So this, uh, uh, what we, uh, growing up in a democratic era, think the unjust use of concentrated power, it's only unjust because we, we beautifully imagined that our, our sweet uh, two generations after World War II would be forever. We're going back to how 
power works. That is another point, actually, that, that, that Simon Cooper makes, is that in order to correct these huge imbalances of power in which, you know, one man has a $204 billion fortune and others are starving, is a war. And that's why the, peri- the post-war period was such a shock. It was such a shock uh, to um, Western societies that it enabled a, a fairer society. In Britain, we had the National Health Service. We had all kinds of social security. Um, the foundations of a social democratic state were laid at that point, but it took a war to do it. So I guess the, the, the concern that, that you know, is expressed in this piece is that absent a, 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 a total war, I mean, a war that involves all of society, not a war in Ukraine or in Gaza for uh, when, in which citizens are not of other countries are not directly involved. It's extraordinarily hard to constrain uh, oligarchic power. And they point out that in as recently as, as 1988, there were three oligarchs who were also head of state or, or government, and now there are 20. So, you know, they are directly taking over in uh, many different countries, countries as diverse as Salvador and Nigeria. And once in power, you know, if Trump gets back to power, for example... I don't think anyone will imagine that he'll ever leave. You know, he's going to sh- he's going to make sure that he never leaves. I wonder if at this point we could bring in the fact that um, the former premier of China, Li Keqiang, died this week, and he was seen as the moderate who was eclipsed by Xi Jinping, whose eyes were so firmly on the prize that 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 you know Li Keqiang never really got to have his day in the sun and you know develop any kind of oligarchy ish. I don't know if that's an adjective or not, but I'll run with it. Um, tendencies that, that that never happened. He was he was sort of portrayed this week as the misfit, the the moderate in inverted commas within the party, the the economist inside a bunch of engineers, the, the guy who never was going to get the prize. Yeah, I mean he came very close actually, and and I think it's reasonable certainly in the last ten years, the last ten years in which he was prime minister to portray him uh, certainly as as a moderate compared to Xi Jinping because unlike Xi Jinping who has taken all sorts of power back from the state into party hands Li Keqiang was a man who encouraged uh, who encouraged private business he was you know committed to globalization he was very frank about the deficiencies of, for example of the kind of data that they were having to deal with he said you know this is <laughs> he had his own methods of trying to work out what was really going on in the economy because he knew everybody was lying about it so you know he was an interesting man in that sense. I met him once, actually. I, I, I led a, a research study for a thing called, um, it's the, a, a, a Chinese uh, uh, International Cooperation on Environment. It's a, it's a body that's existed since Rio. And they do, they organize kind of joint research projects on environmentally and climate related issues. And um this culminates in an uh, an AGM in which the uh, the leaders of these research studies get to meet uh, the Prime Minister in, in the Great Hall of the People. So I did meet Li Keqiang on that occasion. And he presents very differently from Xi Jinping. You know, Xi Jinping is very much stiff and playing the emperor. Li Keqiang um, was, you know, he, he translated, when he was a law student in Beida and Beijing University, uh, he translated a, a, a British uh, law book on, you know, on on public law, he uh, into Chinese. And he was one of that generation. He was from a poor family, unlike Xi Jinping, who's from an oligarchic family. And 
in the Cultural Revolution, when all educational establishments were closed down for 10 years, at the end of it, they had three years when anyone who had been deprived of the opportunity of going to university could compete. So the competition was ferocious. And he got into the top university in China in that competition. So he was very bright, read law, then read economics. We had um, the former editor-in-chief of Reuters, David Schlesinger, in, sitting in that very chair a couple of days ago. Know, and you're nodding with warmth. He yes. said that he sat next to uh, Li Keqiang once at dinner. He didn't speak, never said a word. That's interesting. Because he was there, because he knew he had to be there, but that was that. And did you get the impression that he wasn't much of a talker? Um, he seemed, when, when I met him, and, and actually in a lot of his public appearances, he did seem, he seemed pretty relaxed and able to talk if he wanted to. I mean, he wasn't a saint. He was also in charge of Henan province at a time when there was a massive blood scandal. I don't know if you remember. They were collecting uh, and blood and not testing it. So it was contaminated blood, which produced a terrible epidemic of AIDS in Henan province, okay. which a whistleblowing doctor called attention to. And Li Keqiang, you know, played a big part in suppressing that uh, that news and that story, which meant a lot more people died. So he was a party man, but he was a party man with very different ideas from uh, Xi Jinping, and he very much lost out. You're listening to Monocle on Sunday. Thanks for that, Isabel. Um, let's have, we've got about two and a half minutes left, so I know uh, that we want to sort of slip the surly bonds of Earth and head to Venus. You've got two minutes David, to tell us why we should be worried about the planet Venus. Venus can terrify us. <laughs> the reason it can terrify us is uh, on Venus, it's so hot, uh, hundreds and hundreds of degrees Fahrenheit and centigrade, that a large battle tank would melt on the surface. The clouds of sulfuric acid raining down. And that's on a good day. That's on a day when you're feeling positive about the world. Well, What's terrifying is that scientists recently have found that uh, the surface of Venus, although it's fixed now, used to move around. And it moved around in a way that carbon dioxide, which uh, uh, is what created this greenhouse effect on Venus, was uh, much lower. And Venus, several billion years ago, was probably like Earth, a continent, a, a, a moderate temperature, an atmosphere, and oceans, which means it could have had life. It could have been a planet like us before us. It would have sent out uh, radio waves of its TV of nice people from Venus having like strong dramatic problems and romantic comedies. Of uh, they, they had 17 sexes and genders. Um, it made our LGBT like a you're nothing. Go, you're going on a frolic somewhere, David. I'm Come back to Venus. I'm going to uh, have to bring you back. That's right. So going back to Venus, uh, that uh, <laughs> something went wrong, and the CO2 rose, and it became this hellhole that it is now. What's sad is if we look at it now, it seems to be this terrible place. But if they did have life and a civilization a billion years ago, we would have no idea looking at it. It all would have been melted in that boiled rocks. But yet bits of its radio and television transmissions would be traveling out across the galaxies. If this happens to us, uh, with enough CO2, our oceans will boil. And once they boil, there's more water vapor in the air and the greenhouse effects gets even, even worse. Earth can turn into a planet like Venus. All that will remain of our civilizations, everything we care about, will be molten mush on the surface. And a few television transmissions will be floating out behind that of Venus, showing what happens if Earthlings and Venetians do not vote for the correct party. David, the world is going to hell in a handcart. Why did you decide to bring this, this up on a Sunday? You've got about 10 seconds to explain why this is something we need to worry the about. The moment we take our eyes away from Venus and look at the world around us, we feel ah, so much better. 
Thank you, David. And thanks to Isabel Hilton, too, my two guests around the table here on Monocle on Sunday. Thanks also to Petri Burtsoff at the Helsinki Book Fair and to our editorial director, Tyler Brule, wearing out the shoe leather in Hong Kong. Thanks to Desiree Bandley and Marie LeBevan, our producers, and to Mariella, who's been doing the technical bits, too. I'm Emma Nelson. Monocle on Sunday returns next week. But until then, enjoy the rest of your weekend and goodbye. And thanks for listening. Thank you.